what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Welcome to the True Performance Show by Ziegler. Every positive pursuit in life, every progression of personal development, change is fueled by one thing, inspiration. It's the drive and the hunger that propels every good endeavor. Without it, we merely have a dream, but never actually move. With it, we can actually overcome insurmountable odds to achieve our desires, convictions, and calling. In this show, we come together to drill down into what really makes success tick and how we can apply it to our unique personal and work lives. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and right now, we're going to inspire your true performance. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin. Today, we have episode 407 of Ziggler's True Performance Show. And Tom Ziggler and I are bringing you Dan Harris. He's co-anchor of ABC News Nightline and the weekend edition of Good Morning America. To get into the topic of today's show, I'm going to preface by talking real quick about Zig Ziglar's renowned self-talk cards. We get weekly testimonies from people sharing how their lives have changed as a result of the self-talk cards that you can always get at Ziggler.com forward slash self-talk. Matter of fact, we recently got this one. Uh, just Actually, I think it was yesterday. Uh, somebody said, or somebody, it's... um. I think their name is on here. Marcy. Yeah. Macy. Uh, it's been 96 days since I downloaded the self-talk cards. I'm going to, I'm going strong with my morning and evening routine, nearly not missing a single time. When I started, I worked at a fast food restaurant working for a very low salary. I started to be grateful for the job uh, by listening to these, but at the same time, I thought that I'm sure there's much more than I can, that I can do. Now I work at a very nice sushi restaurant, making twice as much money than before. I believe that I have a great value as a person. And although I'm employed, I work with the mentality of self-employed. There's still way more to come. Life is an awesome, uh, and my journey of working on my self-image has just begun. It's changing my life. I realize it's a lifelong process, which I'm committed to. Thank you for passing on the Ziegler message and making the world a better place. Born to win, uh, Macy. Well, thank you so much for that. And, uh, love your new job because I adore sushi as well. But again, you can get those cards, self-talk cards at Ziggler.com slash self-talk. But the point that I'm making here today here is the self-talk cards. I mean, they don't have any supernatural powers. You know, it's not out of the Bible. It's programming. It's training your brain. Simple as that. Well, our guest today, Dan Harris, had a live on-air panic attack seen by millions of viewers. Ten years later, he's written a book on why it happened called 10% Happier. Uh, something, and, he, and what he talks about, it's, it's a lot of what we can all relate to. Um, but he tells, of course, then what he's done to get to a healthier place. And folks, it's brain training. So our true performance show by Ziegler audience is fairly conservative. And following this interview, Tom Ziegler and I, you know, we thought uh, we may hear from some folks on this regarding some of the content. But I believe we and our guest, uh, Dan Harris, are very clear on the reality that this has proven a worthy tool to help you increase your personal performance. 
And I'll go further to testify that since the recording of this show, uh, of, of that show, I'm working on this very, uh, this, this type of brain training as I'm having some manifest manifestations of not dealing so well with anxiety. So we're going to get into it here. So if you don't know Dan, Dan Harris is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. A true story. Harris is the co-creator of the 10% Happier Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics app and the host of the podcast 10% Happier with Dan Harris. He is also co-anchor for ABC News Nightline and for the weekend edition of Good Morning America. Before that, he was the anchor of the Sunday edition of World News. So Harris has reported from all over the planet, covering wars in Afghanistan, Israel, Palestine, Iraq, and produced investigative reports in Haiti, Cambodia, and the Congo. He's been at ABC News for 15 years, receiving Murrow and Emmy Awards for his reporting. Prior to joining ABC, he was in local news in Boston and Maine. He grew up outside of Boston, currently lives with his wife, Bianca, and son, Alexander, in New York City. That's where we spoke to him for this interview. So you can find him at 10percenthappier.com. Okay, that's his website, 10, the number 10. Don't spell it out, 10percenthappier.com. And again, his app that I just mentioned, you can find, if you go into your app store by searching for, just put in 10percenthappier, uh, and you'll pull it up. Well, as I mentioned before, Dan had a nationally televised panic attack and knew he had to make some changes. Eventually, Dan realized the source of his problems was the very thing he always thought was his greatest asset, the incessant, insatiable voice in his head, which had propelled him through the ranks of a hyper-competitive business, but had also led him to make the profoundly stupid decisions that provoked his on-air freak out. Eventually Harris stumbled upon an effective way to rein in that voice, something he always assumed to be either impossible or useless. And he used it with meditation, a tool that research suggests can do everything from lower your blood pressure to essentially rewiring your brain. 10% happier takes readers on a ride from the outer reaches of neuroscience to the inner sanctum of network news, to the bizarre fringes of America's spiritual scene and leaves them with a takeaway that could actually change their lives. So, you know, as he's talking about that inner voice, that is something that Zig Ziglar talks about so much. That is a big part of the self-talk cards and the reprogramming. Um, so folks, here is Tom Ziegler and I. We're going to bring you a really interesting and informative show. If you want to comment about it, shoot to us at ask at zigshow.com. All right, here we go. Well, Dan, you are a broadcasting master and celebrity, so I'm a little intimidated. I mean, you're on ABC News, for goodness sake. Thank you for joining us for the Ziggler broadcast today. We are so honored. Thank you. I uh, I would just um, make clear that I am definitely not a master, um, and you should not be intimidated. Okay. All right. Well, I feel better now. Thank you. <laughs> well, hey, it's still uh, impressive what you do. Okay. My first question, did you meditate today? Yeah. Yeah. I've done an hour today. Hour. Yeah. T- give us a snapshot of what that looked like. Uh, well, I had to do uh, a shoot downtown. Um, I had to do uh, a, a pre-July 4th, you know, how to grill your meats type of thing downtown at Chelsea Market here in, in Manhattan. And um, I now take cars, Uber cars, uh, back and forth to everything, even though the subway is quicker because I can meditate in the back of the car as long as the driver turns the radio off. Um, so the trip down there was 20 minutes. The trip back was 40 minutes because we hit a lot of traffic and 
I get a lot of my minutes uh, done for the day if I have to take a car ride. And so it's just shutting the, shutting the world out a little bit and trying to hone in and, and focus without the distraction of the, the noise, the sights, the sounds? Actually, it's the exact opposite. It's okay. opening up to the world. Uh, as a friend of mine says, you let your senses rip. Wow. Uh, and so you, so in the back of a car, you know, your, uh, the noise, the movement, um, all of, you know, your impatience, all of that, and all the external and internal stimuli can become the objects of meditation. And, um, I mean, that, that, that really is the, the, the point of that is uh, is so that the once you have this lens on your the way your mind works and the way things are registering in the mind, then then um, what's happening in your mind doesn't yank you around so much. So uh, that's really the goal of meditation, at least the kind of meditation I do, which is mindfulness meditation, or um, in the Buddhist tradition would be called insight meditation, where you. Uh, are just really trying to see clearly the contents of your own consciousness so that you're not yanked around by it. Well, and I greatly appreciate it. And we're going to dig into this. Appreciate your perspective that you are somewhat debunking the perspectives that we all have, uh, tend to have on meditation. So I, w- I want to dig in a little bit. I mean, big picture, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you had achieved a great level of success in your work. Um, I'm sure you had bigger goals, but for most of us, you were you know, top of the game. You've been doing it a while. You weren't new. And then you had, of course, your, the famous breakdown, a panic attack on live TV. But you say it was the culmination of something that had been brewing for years, which, of course, is the case for most of any physical or emotional pathology. But would you share with us some of that story? What were the contributing factors that led up to that ultimate fruition of a panic attack on live TV? Yeah, I um, I joined ABC News when I was 28 years old. I was really green. Um, often in my talks, I show the picture they took of me on my first day, um, which is still on my security ID. Uh, and... Uh, one of my colleagues joked not long afterwards that if you if if, if you took a wide shot of that picture, it, it looked like I might be holding a balloon. I was <laughs> just really young looking and very green and working with these giants in the industry, real giants like Peter Jennings and Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters. And uh, I was very insecure about being green. And as I said, and, and my way of coping with that was to become really a workaholic. I think I probably was a workaholic anyway, but um I just threw myself into the job and I always, I, I had this motto that my father, who's a doctor up, up in Boston, had bequeathed to me, which is, uh, the price of security is insecurity. Uh, and so I, I, I had this intense, you know, anxiety loop in my running in my head all the time. Like, you know, how good was my last story? What's my next story going to be? Who's getting the story that I want? How, what's my relationship with the bosses right now? Blah, blah, blah. And I believe that any success that I was achieving was directly linked to the intensity of, of the aforementioned uh, anxiety loop. So uh, th- then after being at ABC for about a year and a half, 9-11 happened. So I joined ABC at, in the year 2000. And then obviously um, 2001, we had 9-11. And um, that was a huge event in the news industry. And, and I kind of volunteered to go overseas and cover whatever happened next. And uh, my boss is obliged. And I ended up spending many years in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Iraq. Um, I made six trips to Iraq. And um, after I came home from one really long run in Iraq in the summer of 2003, so I had 
I covered the sort of pre-invasion uh, parts of the invasion and then uh, a lot of the post-invasion and the insurgency. And I, I came home and I got depressed. And uh, um, I didn't even actually know I was depressed. Uh, but I, uh, so at, at that point, I, sorry, let me just say that I didn't know I was depressed, but I, I was exhibiting what I, what I think I now know to be some of the signature signs and symptoms. I was having trouble getting out of bed. I felt like I had a low grade fever all the time. Hmm. And at this point I did an incredibly dumb thing, which is I started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine and ecstasy. Uh, and I wasn't doing it that frequently. I was, uh, and for a pretty brief period of time. Um, but, uh, it was enough, according to my doctor, to prime me to have a panic attack on national television in June of 2004 uh, on Good Morning America in front of an audience of, I went and had this checked, uh, an audience of 5.019 million people. I was, uh, my job that morning was something I had done a bunch of times before, which was to um, read the headlines. You know, I was the guy who came on at the top of each hour and re read the headlines and um I just, in the middle of doing that, I uh, just, my mind started racing, my heart started racing, my lungs seized up, my palms were sweating, my mouth dried up, I, I couldn't speak, and I had to quit in the middle, and it was just, it just sucked uncontrollably, so uh, that was a pretty big wake-up call, and, and that was when I went to go see the doctor who pointed out that the drugs were the problem, and, and uh, um, so anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, and so they were a part of the ingredients of, of, of a lifestyle that was, that was ramping up towards this. So we, and you talk about this in the, in the book, you know, we have a culture where anxiety, panic attacks, those types of things are on the rise. Is it, do you see us in our habits? And this is right up Tom's alley uh, of uh, talking about habits that we are all instituting or partaking in habits, lifestyles, cultural realities that are priming us more to be at risk for anxiety, panic attacks and, and such? Well, you know, I, I want to be careful just because I'm not, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm an expert in my own panic and, and, and anxiety and depression and drug abuse. I've got, I got it. I got the whole pantheon of, uh, of, uh, pathologies there. Um, but I'm not an expert in, um, in, what causes it or how common it is. But I, I guess I would say that, you know, we, we have this fight or flight instinct, um, uh, that was wired into us probably was very useful, um, you know, on the, on the Savannah when we were evolving. Um, but now it's triggered, uh, this massive burst of adrenaline that you get during a fight or flight, um, episode. Now it's triggered in, you know, traffic jams and meetings with your boss and, um, and, and it, it's a, just a tough thing to manage. Yeah. I, my son, just my son, Alexander is 18 months old. He just walked into the room and told me he loved me, which is nice. Oh, that's priceless. <laughs> well, uh, it's, you know what? Uh, it, that's a good segue there. I was just checking out before we came on, looking at your, looking at your Twitter posts, actually, and just kind of looking at some things you had multiple, I mean, here you are focused on, you know, this, this aspect of, uh, therapy in essence of, of meditation. And you had a bunch of posts on there on parental happiness. And I wondered if that's something that just is kind of surfacing in the media, or is that something that you were just pressing into personally, because you have a, uh, a fairly new kiddo of your own. 
I'm I'm really interested in parental happiness. Uh, he's yelling at me right now. Uh, I think parental happiness is obviously top of mind when you're um, uh, when you've got an 18 month old around. Yeah. You know, the, the the studies show, generally speaking, parents of new babies don't are 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 uh, less happy. But that has definitely not not been the case for me. I think that may be because I'm a little older. I'm almost 45 and. Um, and being mid-career, I think we have um, more resources than a lot of uh, young parents do. And therefore, I haven't you know, missed as much sleep, I think, than, as a lot of young parents do. And mm-hmm. um, so for me, it's just been a purely pleasurable experience. Well, that's a big deal, obviously. And but on that parental happiness, how in the in the post, what is the focal point in regards to your work? that is being talked about and discussed in regards to parental happiness? Well, you know, mindfulness uh, is, you know, I think uh, something that, that has been shown to, um, uh, to be very effective according to the early science. And I, I stress when I talk about the science of meditation that it's all very early. Um, uh, with kids, uh, it's been shown to affect grades, uh, behavior, um, there was uh, there were some studies done by a friend of mine at the University of Wisconsin, Richie Davidson, who was teaching preschoolers how to meditate. And um, the, uh, the the ones who were taught how to meditate, as opposed to those in the control group who weren't, uh, became more likely to give their stickers away to other kids they didn't know. Um, so you can really have uh, an impact uh, on um, uh, childhood uh, on child behavior and. Um, uh, performance in school, it appears according to these early studies. So that's really amazing. And then for parents, I haven't seen many studies about what meditation could do for you. Um, but it just, I think it seems to me obvious that meditation is good for almost everybody in pretty much any circumstance. And for parenting, it would be huge in terms of, uh, you know, here's one of the things that people always say to new parents. It's just such a, like a bromide that everybody throws at you when you have a kid. Enjoy every moment. Usually it's, it's older parents who say that, bye, baby, they're leaving now. Um, uh, it's usually it's older pa- parents of older children who say that to you because I, I suspect because they realize that it went by so fast for them and they were probably so annoyed during most of the children, their child's uh, early years that uh, they kind of regret it. Um, but I heard this enjoy every moment thing so much when we first had Alexander that um, uh I actually decided to take it to heart and meditation is really good at getting you to focus on what's happening right now, as opposed to projecting off into the future or ruminating about the past. And so I've really tried to put that into practice in, in having my own kid. And I, I think for parents of all stripes, it, it, this would be an enormously useful thing. And then the other area in which I think meditation can be very useful for parents is just patience. You know, um, we, mindfulness, which is the ability to know what's happening in your mind at any given moment without getting carried away by it, can be really useful when your kid's deliberately pressing your buttons. You know, my our, our son's only 18 months, but he's already really testing us. He does this thing where, like, right before he's going to break a rule, he yells, no, 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 and then he, like, tries to <laughs> rip the cat's face off or something like that. So he's, like, the dumbest criminal I, I like the warning, though. That's good. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate the warning, but it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> in any way mitigate the vivor, uh, excuse me, um, verve and vigor with which he breaks the rules. Um, but, but he's testing you, and 
And so if you can see the anger, you know, if you have, if meditation gives you this ability to, to have a little bit more self-awareness and if you can see the anger rising up, you're much less likely to get, uh, to bite the hook and act on it inappropriately. And I think that leads to more patience and better parenting. Yeah. Right. I think, uh, Dan, our audience is very much a faith-based audience and I'm right out of the Bible belt. <clears throat> and so I know there's a lot of questions going on about, What's the difference between meditation, mindfulness, a scientific approach versus a faith-based approach or, or an Eastern approach? And so uh, the thing that intrigued us about you is it's, it's all based on kind of physical realities and science and things like that. And so would you give us a really uh, – I liked your definition of mind, mindfulness, but maybe just compare the misconceptions that people have. Yeah, I may have a lot to say about this, so you just shut me up when you're tired of me talking. Um, so first of all, just so definitionally, there 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 are a million kinds of meditation. It's a little bit like the word sports, um, you know. So uh, when when you say the word meditation, you can be describing a whole bunch of things. When I talk about meditation, I'm talking about mindfulness meditation, which is the kind of meditation that I have been drawn to because it is the one that has been studied the most in the labs. Um, it is also, in my view, the most uh, secular. Um, it is derived from Buddhist meditation, but has been stripped of all the metaphysical claims and Buddhist lingo, and has really been uh, the focus of a lot of scientific research. So, when you meditate, one of the one of the fruits of meditation, and there are many, is this thing called mindfulness, which, as I said, is the ability to know what's happening in your squash, in your cabeza right now, without necessarily taking the bait and acting on it. Um, so that's just to set the terms. Um, uh, in terms of the difference between meditation and prayer, uh, you know, I really think it depends what kind of prayer you're doing. Um, uh, one of the sort of flavors, one of the sort of offshoots of, um, of mindfulness meditation is compassion meditation, which is a very different um, uh, exercise, but is actually sort of a related practice that is often taught in conjunction with uh, mindfulness meditation. And in compassion meditation, you sort of, it's, a, it's like really sappy, but you're sort of um, systematically picturing people in your world and sending them good vibes, good well wishes. And um, I have a friend who's a pastor and he does this thing. I think it's just like an informal practice that he does that he, uh, when he's walking down the street in New York city, just tries to see the world through Jesus's eyes. So what is the difference between what he does and compassion meditation? Frankly, I don't imagine, I think if we studied the brains of people doing both of these exercises, I think we'd see very similar results if the dosage was similar. Um, that's just, uh, uh, that's just my, um, surmise, but I, um, but it seems to me that these are very similar practices. If in prayer you're sitting and just, you know, taking off a laundry list of stuff you hope will happen, uh, that is affirmatively not meditation, uh, because meditation is the, is, um, the attempt to focus the mind on one thing at a time, usually your breath. And then every time you get lost to start again and again and again. So it's kind of the opposite of letting the discursive chattering mind run wild, uh, which I, you know, I haven't done a lot of prayer. I'm, I, I would call myself a respectful agnostic, not raised in a religious tradition, although I have been covering faith and spirituality for ABC News for a long time. So I have some familiar with it, familiarity with it, but not intimate familiarity. So I can't say what everybody's prayer life is like, but I suspect for some people it really does 
amount to just kind of letting the chattering mind run wild. Um, that being said, obviously, a lot of people's prayer life is much more, um, much more uh, rigorous and uh, um, systematic than what I just described. And what I would, what I've heard from people of faith who've toyed with this secular kind of meditation that I mindfulness meditation is that the focus that you develop in mindfulness meditation can really help you have a much more focused and effective prayer life. That the net result is that you feel closer to God. And I'll, the last thing I'll say is that there's a book on my shelf right here as I speak to you, uh, written by a former uh, theology professor here in New York City, and it's called "Without the Buddha, I Couldn't Be a Christian." Mm-hmm. Um, and so his basic argument is that the mind training that he found in Buddhism which uh, actually I will say one more thing about Buddhism before I finish, that the mind training that he found in Buddhism really helped enrich his Christian faith, uh, not because he became, you know, fell in love with the metaphysical claims uh, uh, of Buddhism, but that the the ability to focus and be more self-aware really helped him uh, in his prayer life. That's my understanding of his thesis. It's been a while since I read the book. But just before I shut up, one last thing about Buddhism, which is that it is, of course, a religion, and many people practice it that way, but it is not the way I practice Buddhism. I would call myself a Buddhist, but in the same way I would call myself a journalist or somebody who goes running. Um, I would say Buddhism is not something to believe in, but instead something to do. And uh, so in that sense, I am a Buddhist, but I'm also an agnostic. Well, a lot of what you said, I, I appreciate. I do a lot of work in the healthcare industry, to put a broad term out there. And, and, and yeah, I hear you saying, regardless of faith, there are foundational habits and exercises adopted by many people that are just proven successful, period. Um, use them or not, or, or whether you believe in the, the ultimate uh, part of that. And, and I again, your focus on the value of meditation uh, but your platform is in so many ways debunking again, all the baggage around it. And I love that perspective. And you, I, you had this in your book that, uh, it's simply an exercise for the brain. And, um, yeah, again, I'm involved in an alternative medical industry and a strong proponent of neurotherapy. Uh, my wife works in a research center for learning RX and, uh, ex- you know, I'm extremely aware that it's very foreign for people to even think about the brain as a muscle. So you leveling labeling meditation as a simple exercise for the brain does so much to demystify. Yeah. The hoodoo guru-ness of meditation. I mean, but do you still, do you find then that's what you're doing is educating people that, Hey, your brain is a muscle that you can influence. That is exactly what I'm trying to do is to, you know, I think that in the not too distant future, we're going to think about, mental exercise the same way we now think about physical exercise. You know, in the the 1940s, if you told somebody you were going running, they probably would have said, who's chasing you? (laughs) And and, and then what happened? The scientists swooped in. They demonstrated the many physiological and psychological benefits of of physical exercise. uh, And now we all do it. And if we don't do it, we feel guilty about it. Um, And that's that's where I think we're heading with with all the science around uh, mental exercise. It's just that it's going to join the pantheon of no-brainers, although that's probably a, a weird <laughs> term to use here. But the pantheon of no-brainers, like brushing your teeth, taking your meds, you know, getting enough sleep, eating well, all the things that we do and that if we don't do, we feel guilty about. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. My wife is going to love this interview. Again, her, her research she, she, she works with, they've just had some things passed showing brain training in essence, just to give it a layman's terms. And they're having it starting to be covered by insurance. It's being recognized because of 
the value of it. So this is, uh, they're going to love this. Well, so the primary problem that you cited at the, as we get into your book, were the voices in your head, the internal, and this is your quote, the internal narrator, the most intimate part of our lives, the inner chatter. I mean, of course, this is central to the message of Zig Ziglar. I mean, his self-talk cards have uh, his positive affirmations in essence are directly, you know, squarely at creating positive self-talk, but in the way you phrase it, voices in your head, the internal narrator, inner talk and chatter. I, I bet there are some people hearing this who say, well, gosh, I, I don't, I don't have that. They're not cognizant of that. They don't think I have anything negative or positive really going on. They're just going along in neutral. And I'm guessing that you would disagree with that. This episode of Ziggler's True Performance Show is brought to you by Braintree. For those of you who do business online, you probably remember the first dollar you made. Now you want to grow to make your millionth dollar. You need the right payments partner to grow with you. One that's an expert at helping people complete the transaction, not suffer shopping cart fallout. Braintree lets you accept every way to pay from PayPal to Apple Pay and everything in between. All it takes is one integration. And it doesn't matter what currency your customers use because Braintree lets you accept over 130 of them. To learn more about how your company can grow with Braintree, visit braintreepayments.com slash Ziggler. Again, that's braintreepayments.com slash Ziggler. Just one point of clarification. Yep. I wouldn't say voices because I would say voice. Um, okay. Because voices really makes you think of um, schizophrenia or hearing voices it, or whatever, sure, sure. which is not, not what I'm talking about, although that is obviously something that does happen for some people. I'm talking about your internal narrator, your inner you, the voice that chases you out of bed in the morning and is yammering at you all day long, has you constantly wanting stuff, not wanting stuff, judging people, comparing yourself to people, criticizing yourself. Uh, thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever's happening right now. I have a friend who jokes that when you, when he thinks about the voice in his head, he feels like he's been hijacked by the most boring person alive. who just <laughs> says the same crap over yeah. and over and over most of it negative and all of it self-referential. And if you think you don't have this, you are kidding yourself. And, um, and if you and when you're unaware of this voice, it's that is exactly when it gets you. That is when you find yourself eating when you're not hungry or checking your email in the middle of a conversation with your child or losing your temper when it's strategically unwise. The voice in the head unobserved um, is really, I think, the source of all the things that we regret the most. By the way, it was the source of my panic attack. The voice in the head is what told me to go off to go to war zones without thinking about the consequences. I came home, got depressed, was insufficiently self-aware to even know it, and then blindly self-medicated, and it blew up in my face. You know, uh, one of the things that Dad said is he, he said that the most important conversation you'll have all day is the conversation you have with yourself. And then you hear this, this other angle of that, and the most, uh, the most important story in your life is the story that you tell yourself. So how do you use meditation to shape the story that you tell yourself, the conversation you have with yourself? Well, I think the first step is just to know that you're having this conversation. And what meditation does, so let me just, I think it might be useful just to, I'm not going to make you meditate, and this will only take a very, very short period of time, but let me just explain what meditation, at least mindfulness meditation, entails. So, And this will really, I think, be very reassuring to you, those in your faith audience, because you'll see that there's no, there are no candles, nothing to believe in, nothing to join, um, no chanting, no special outfits. Um, 
there are really just three steps for beginning meditation. One is to sit comfortably with your spine straight. Um, a lot of people close their eyes, although you don't have to. The second step is just to notice, to really bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. So usually pick a spot where that's most prominent. It can be your nose or your chest or your belly. And then the third step is the key. Because as soon as you try to do this, as soon as you just try to feel your breath coming in and going out, which sounds very simple, your, your mind's going to go nuts. You're going to start thinking about what am I going to have for lunch? Why did I say that dumb thing to my boss? Do I need a haircut? Why did Dances with Wolves beat uh, Goodfellas for Best Picture in 1991? Where did gerbils run wild? Blah, blah, blah. You're just, your mind's going to go crazy. And the whole game is just to notice when you've become distracted and to start again. And again, and again, and again, and again. And that is a bicep curl for your brain. Uh, and that is what shows up on the brain scan. So people think they can't meditate because they feel like they cl can't clear the mind. It, clearing the mind is impossible unless you're enlightened, whatever that means, or uh, you're dead. Um, at, the point of meditation is not to clear the mind. It is to focus the mind for nanoseconds at a time. And then when you get lost, to start again and again and again. Um, what happens in the course of this exercise is that you see, first, that you're crazy, that the mind is out of control. Uh, the second is that you, over time you start to see these are just thoughts. The mind is just vomiting up thoughts all the time. And they don't necessarily have any connection to reality. Scientists don't even know where they come from. They come out of a void. This is one of the big mysteries, the mystery of consciousness. Um, and so you don't have to believe in or act on any of these thoughts. And so after, over time, you, you start to be able to observe the contents of your mental processes with some non-judgmental remove. Uh, and so, uh, I think that allows you to not take so seriously the story you have been habitually telling yourself since sentience, A, and B, to make room for new stories. And, uh, and so, you know, mind training of the type that your dad taught is, I don't know much about it at all, uh, comes at it from a completely different perspective, in my view. Uh, this is like undermining the whole sense of a storyteller at all. Really puts you in touch with, where are these thoughts coming from? You know, uh, who who's in here? Um, and that throws you up against some really deep mysteries and helps you, I think. It's not so much that you're trying to change the story. It's just you're, you're raising questions about, where are the stories coming from? Who's the storyteller? Why am I believing this in the first place? Well, you're, you're bringing to light. I mean, so it's, to you, it's simple. You get your three steps there and I look at it and I think, okay, not a big deal. And yet I know the reality. Of, well, it brought me as I was reading through the book to a quote that I, I imagine you've heard of and I did not know exactly where it came from. It's apparently attributed to the French philosopher uh, Pascal, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Yeah. There was a, there was a study recently that asked people uh, that people were given a choice between doing that and giving themselves electric shocks, and most people chose the shocks. Well, th that's interesting. You know, as as we look at, I had I read a commentary recently on just the the proliferation of horror movies right now. They seem to be coming out every other movie, and that when you break it down, it's it's people's desire to feel something. They want to be stimulated. They want to be, uh, interacted on in, in some degree. And you're in to sit there quietly by 
yourself. It's not comfortable. I'd say even for me, and I would, I would like to think that I'm a fairly, you know, healthy person overall. And yet it's not my go-to. I want some kind of input. I don't, uh, matter of fact, I have a son who's a very peaceful soul and yet it bothered me. Uh, and it was the feeling of, hey, guys, don't just sit there, do something. I mean, he would eat his food and just sit there at the table and it just got under my skin. I could read a book or something. And we got into that. I don't know what brought us to, it was probably reading something along these lines that said, no, no, do the opposite. Don't just do something. Sit there, man. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's, that's uh countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's counter evolutionary. I mean, it's, it, it runs against all of our habits. You know, we were, we were bred for threat detection, you know, and back in the, back in the caveman days. And so we have these prefrontal cortices, these, the, the parts of the brain that make us human that are just racing all the time. Um, and so it's very hard for us to just sit and observe what's going on um, in our own minds or, or in the world. Um, but there are a lot of reasons to do it. Uh, well, f- first of all, let me just say that does make meditation very hard for people, but, but it's actually, I have a bunch of things to say about this because people are always looking for excuses not to do this. Uh, I hear all the time from people, um, you don't understand, I can't meditate, my mind is too busy. Uh Uh, That is, I call it in my book, the fallacy of uniqueness. Um, The fact is we all have busy minds and welcome to the human condition. The other thing I hear a lot is I tried it and couldn't do it. That is akin to picking up a violin for the first time and being disappointed you can't play Bach. This is a skill. Um, and you're working, you're working against the habits of a lifetime and it's going to feel awkward and gawky at first. The good news is it's supposed to feel that way and that it gets easier over time. And that that then gives you this emotional agility with, you know, we're, we're just, we're just beset by information, by internal urges, by emotions, and that we're just yanked around by this malevolent puppeteer of our ego all the time. And what mindfulness gives you the ability to do is see what's happening so that you aren't controlled by it. That is a superpower. And that is why we're now seeing this thing adopted in really unusual places like locker rooms, the Red Sox, the Seattle Seahawks, um, executive suites, Google, Procter & Gamble, Aetna, General Mills, ABC News. We have a meditation room now. Uh, uh, the U.S. military, both the Army and the Marines, spending tens of millions of dollars to research whether meditation can make troops who are uh, more focused, less reactive, and more resilient. Uh, so, so I think, to me, the benefit, the value is just self-evident once it's correctly articulated without all of the mumbo-jumbo that has been associated with meditation for way too long. I'll just close by saying I feel like meditation has... Uh, been the victim of the worst marketing campaign for anything ever. I think you've brought to light that, and I would, I would agree with that. Well, you know, Dan, as I was thinking through this too, I mean, there is so much, and as I am sure you can enlighten us more on just the historical realities of this from some of our most influential world leaders of all time. And I had remembered a story and I was thinking it was a, I I typed it in about a spoon, but apparently it's about a key and it's attributed to a lot of people, but Salvador Dali, Einstein, Aristotle, where they would take a a nap, hold a key in their, uh, you know, whether it's true or not, I like the concept, but hold a key in their, in their hand till they fell asleep. And then it would fall in a plate and, and clatter. And it was a way, it was a thinking technique, creative thinking technique, but to me, it was another story that I have so often read about these amazing people who took 
time for, in essence, margin, uh, margin in their lives. That's where the brilliance happened. It was stopping, taking time to think, to dwell, to be mindful. And yet we want to think that it comes in a massive rush of anxiety that we're going to have something beautiful happen. And I don't, I don't think it does, which again, you're at the height of it. You're in a business, as you talked about the business that you're in seems to me from a layman's standpoint to what you do. And there's a lot of anxiety in there. I mean, you are, you're live in front of uh, millions of people that that's a high anxiety area. And for you to be the one coming and saying, no, you've got to have again, mindfulness margin. You've got to take rest Sabbath. I mean, we can put a bunch of terms behind it that are historical and go back forever. Yeah, but this is not new, uh, and it's not restricted to you know uh, uh, robed gurus in Asia either. It's um, you know the Desert father, Fathers, the Christians, um, the uh, uh, Meister Eckhart, um, you know, in the Christian tradition as well. Uh, there's a, bit, a mystical tradition uh, in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, Sufi Islam. Uh, where they've been doing mind training uh, um, stuff from meditation to centering prayer to special types of dances and chanting, uh, all designed to quiet the chatter of the mind so other things can come through, which may be a union, a mystical union with God, or it may just be, you know, being less of a jerk. (laughs) Well... I appreciate that. Okay, so you, we mentioned this a little bit ago, and you said, "Hey, I'm not an expert on you know what's happening out there." So, from again the the uh, uh, the involvement I have in uh, healthcare medicine right now, I looked it up, and a recent study done talk, says uh, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States, age 18 and older. Uh, or 18% of the population. Anxiety disorders are highly treatable. This is point number two, yet only about one-third of those suffering receive treatment. And then the last point, anxiety disorders cost the U.S. more than $42 billion a year, almost one-third of the country's $1.48 billion total mental health bill. Uh, so two things that I got from that. First, they're saying, in essence, that the campaign that you're pushing here, Dan, is is a, uh, relevant for at least a third of our country's total mental health bill and 18% of the population. To me, that's that's an epidemic. Uh, we need your message in this book drastically, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it's not just anxiety. It's also depression, which would, would account for another huge oh, chunk huge, of our mental health huge. bill. Uh, and anxiety and depression, you know, there's been a lot of science around meditation. Sometimes this science gets hyped. Um, but the areas where it's strongest, from what I can tell, are anxiety and depression. Um, and in the UK now, uh, health insurer, the, the government, uh, which is the single payer health insurer, health provider in, in the UK, they're paying for people to get mindfulness based therapy for depression and anxiety. And I think wow. we're probably heading toward that in this country because it's been shown to work. Uh, at least the early studies strongly suggest it does. Um, it's not as panacea, uh, but neither are meds. Um, but I think it's useful, and I don't think they're um, uh, mutually exclusive. Okay, so, so go so ahead. What are, what are four or five benefits then for somebody who meditates? The way you're talking about it, mindfulness. Yeah, focus uh, would be one. Uh, um, mindfulness, uh, with, again, this is this sort of emotional intelligence, emotional agility, the ability not to be yanked around by your emotions. Uh, is another um, uh, compassion. Uh, the, once you see the craziness of your own mind, it appears to lead 
if not inexorably, then in many, many cases to uh, sort of greater empathy and compassion uh, with others. Um, uh, and that, that can be really turbocharged by adding in this compassion meditation, which I'm a big believer in, because there's a lot of exciting science around that, too, that shows that compassion meditation just makes you healthier and also can change behavior. Um, and then, then health benefits. Uh, uh, these, uh, these, uh, the early studies suggest there are many. Lower blood pressure, boosted immune system, um, and literally rewiring key parts of your brain. Um, just one last study I tell you about that was done at Harvard in 2011. Took people who had never meditated before. They scanned their brains to get a baseline reading. And then for eight weeks, they did just a short amount of meditating every day. And then at the end of the eight weeks, they scanned the brains again. And what they found was the, the, the meditation um, uh, had made the gray matter in the area of the brain associated with self-awareness and compassion grow, literally grow. And the gray matter in the area of the brain associated with stress literally shrank. So that's a, a brief rundown on some of the benefits you can expect. Uh, although I will say, you know, the science is a great sales tool for me as a, I guess, I guess I'm somewhat of a public health advocate, among other things. Um, uh, it's a great sales tool. Um, but you don't, you know, you may start exercising because you hear about the scientific benefits, but I mean, you may start meditating because you hear about the scientific benefits, but you don't keep meditating because you think your prefrontal cortex is changing. You keep meditating because you're less of a jerk to yourself and others. And that is where the rubber hits the road. Okay. So let me ask right on that. So I, I threw out those stats that I had read. Here, here's another one that leads right into what you just went over. Uh, they said more than $22.84 billion of the costs of uh, mental health are associated with the repeated use of healthcare services. People with anxiety disorders seek relief for symptoms that mimic physical illnesses, which makes me ask how many people right now who are suffering from perceived physical illnesses are really at the root suffering from Mental stress. I mean, how much of the, the medical field is, is catching, how much are they catching or, or care to figure out uh, as a root uh, that, that it's mental and they're just, again, treating these physical symptoms instead? Well, so again, with the caveat that I'm not an expert, two things to say about this. One, uh, you know, when I, as I described before, when I came home from war zones, I got depressed, but I didn't know it. And I was having all these physical symptoms. I went to all these doctors. I got a battery of tests, all of which was super expensive, probably for somebody other than me, my insurer. Um, and at the end of the day, I was depressed. Um, uh, and I just didn't know it. And so how many t other people are dealing with that? But then on top of that, the stress, the untreated stress in this country, with where we're letting the fight or flight response just sort of kick in and, you know, as I said before, in traffic and meetings with your boss, et cetera, et cetera, and we don't have any way to regulate, self-regulate, that it leads to an epidemic of heart disease. So it's just taking, I'm just taking the problem you've identified and quintupling it. Uh, and, and, and again, I don't, I don't think mindfulness and meditation are a panacea for this. I just think they're a very constructive, they could play a very constructive role along with, you know, exercise, more sleep and a healthier diet. So, you know, I have a question for you as far as one of the things that we teach. Uh, we coach people. We help uh, through one-on-one -on -one coaching or in group settings. Uh, we're trying to help people get a breakthrough in their life. And they get stuck. You know, it's it, and what I explain is in this sequence, I call it the sequence of success. 
that our fight or flight, you know, that mechanism of our brain, when we're frustrated or angry, we either just clear the table, wipe our hands and quit in today's society and move on, or we just bang our head against the wall doing the same thing over and over again. So that's the fight mechanism. The flight is I just give up. And when you are in fight or flight, there's only two doors open in your mind. Doing more of the same thing and getting the same old bad results or giving up and leaving. And so the way we interrupt that is we start bringing hope into the situation and we start saying, hey, you know, why don't you reflect on everything that's going right, everything you've done so far? How far have you come? What obstacles have you overcome? What are the, you know, what are the, what are the opportunities in front of you? And we start getting that mindset of hope in there. And then what that does is that creates optimism about, hey, you know what, if I do this or do that, maybe that'll work. So the, the internal chatter changes. Optimism unleashes creativity. So fight or flight, there is no creativity. Optimism unleashes the creativity. And out of that creative side, that's where you can start picking the two or three or four things that you want to now try differently. So the new door is open. You now got a hundred to walk through. Not all of them are good, but before you had two. So how what do you think about that? And how can this mindfulness exercise, how can it help you kind of combine that that idea? If let me free yeah, let me free associate and, and again, you're probably sick of me saying this, but again with the caveat that uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm kind of freelancing here because I'm 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 not a therapist. I'm not an expert at all in what you do. Um, I'm not even an expert in meditation, really. I mean, I'm I'm a meditator for a while, and I and I write about it, but I'm not a teacher. So uh, I just want to say all of that just so that nobody you know sues me or anything. But um, uh, so what you're describing sounds to me like a cognitive approach. You're really using the thinking mind to untangle problems created by the thinking mind which I think sounds great. It's not, not unlike, and I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but it's not unlike therapy in which, you know, you're engaging uh, with a therapist and talking about your problems and um, uh, looking back at the roots of some of your emotional patterns, all of which, you know, seems to be extremely healthy, all of which I think is very complementary with a mindfulness approach. So we, you can think of it as like the cognitive approach, that you're describing or that therapists do or that cognitive behavioral therapists do is kind of like a top-down approach. You're, you know, you're using the, 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 the thinking mind to sort of calm the body and uh, calm everything else, but again, through the thinking mind. My meditation to me seems more like a, a bottom-up where you're um, sort of getting at that you're, you're seeing not intellectually but experientially the 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 way the thinking mind operates um, and the way your body operates because when as soon as you close your eyes and tune in you're you're going to get a lot of signals from your body and you're going to see that those are very much in conjunction with your emotions and thought patterns um, and so I would imagine that these two work very well I think for sure mindfulness and therapy work very well um, and and anyway so I'll leave it at that I my my response is positive so let me let me try to draw on um a connection here and you tell me if this is on target or not I get massages and the massage therapist will be working on me and they'll find a spot in my body that I don't even know is messed up and they'll dig in and I'm like whoa where'd that come from and she'll be like you need to let go you need to let go and not until I kind of release that area does it actually happen so is mindfulness that same thing where you just kind of become aware okay 
oh, wow, I didn't know that was there. Hmm, I'm going to get rid of that or I'm going to let that go. Is it the same same thought? Is that a good connection or not? I Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. And I would say there's definitely some connection there in, in my uh, novice mind. There appears to be a connection and in and so in mindfulness, you may with my, using mindfulness where you're, again, just trying to non-judgmentally view the, uh, what's happening in your own mind and body. You may see patterns. You know, for me, I see the pattern of just constantly. And you, you talked about this er- earlier, Kevin. I see a pattern of me constantly looking for the next dopamine hit. You know, when when's the next ice cream cone? When's the next exciting meeting or whatever? I'm, I can see that pattern in my own mind, or I can see the pattern of impatience. I can see the pattern of anger that I get angry, and uh, you know, it feels like poison running through my veins. Um, uh, and and then the move is to uh, is not to squash it because that never works. Um, the move is just to recognize it's there and not to feed it with more compulsive and obsessive thinking. Um, and so as soon as you see it, as soon as you see these patterns, they lose a lot of their teeth. Um, and, uh, it's not to say that they won't come back. I don't think they vanish magically as soon as you see you have this pattern, but every, the next time it comes back, the next time I'm just like heading to the kitchen because I need some sort of dopamine hit because I'm bored or I'm upset about something, I might stop myself halfway there, you know, 10% of the time and realize, oh, this is just that pattern operating. And so that that's how uh, meditation works. And it may, you know, there may be a, a rough analogy to what you just described about massage. Hey, I like it. So you, you know, you said a couple of times, meditation, mindfulness, it's not the, it's not the end all solution for all things. You're not trying to hold it up uh, as that, but then you talked about just a moment ago, you mentioned it being feeling like a bottoms up, a bottom up work. It reminds me of working out. You know, we poke fun at the guy who has massive arms and chest, but neglects his legs and is walking around on toothpicks. And uh, I, I hear in this message and, and it's what I got out of it a lot in reading through your book, Dan, and looking through your, your listening, listening to you. It seems like we are easily focused on physical wellness. We get that. We know how to address that and, and we understand the benefits, but we are leaving out a foundation of mental wellness and you're just, you're calling us to that. Yeah. I mean, look, think how much time we spend on our bodies, on our stock portfolios, on our interior design, on our resumes, on our hair, uh, and how little time we spend on the one filter through which we experience everything. And that's our mind. Um, and the, the good news that I'm uh, preaching is that the mind is trainable and this is what science is confirming. Um, and so that happiness, which I think many of us assume consciously or subconsciously is dependent upon exogenous factors like the quality of your childhood or the quality of your marriage or the quality of your work life, all of which are super important and I'm not downplaying them in any way. But in fact, what the science is showing us is that happiness is a skill that can be practiced just the way you can practice boosting your bicep in the gym. And that's huge. That's a game changing notion. Yes. You, you mentioned also a couple of times, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, but, but in reality, you know, if it just helps you not be a jerk. Okay. So 
you know, back to that aspect of meditate. You, you mentioned this in the book, um, meditating to keep open space. You mentioned it one time today already, but I want to focus on it. Meditating to keep open space in your brain for acute issues in essence. And it made me think you talked about how much time we spend on you know, stock portfolios and such. Well, this made me think of Dave Ramsey, who we interviewed not long ago and his perspective with money and having an emergency fund for the things that are not really emergencies. They are going to happen. The car will break down. The heat and air will die uh, at our home. We should have money set aside for the inevitable. And so it feels like you're talking about the margin in our brains, having that ready, having a bank account in essence, that must be available for the withdrawals that will happen. And if it's not there, then we're that jerk. I think you're just training the mind for, to deal with every circumstance. Um, so that, you know, I think about it like a graph, um, I've been, I'm terrible at math, but a graph has an x-axis, which runs horizontally, I believe. Um, and so if you think about what's above the, the, the line running through the middle of the graph is good stuff, and the below is bad stuff, generally speaking, you know, we have a, set, a happiness set point. Um, and so like when good stuff happens, you know, we go above the graph, we get happy. Uh, but then we tend to revert back to the sort of the, the, the X axis. We tend to re- revert back to our sort of baseline. And then when bad stuff happens, we, with, you know, the, we dip below the baseline and we get unhappy. Uh, but then we, you know, we tend to revert back to our happiness set point It's just kind of this psychologists agree. We just tend to have this kind of, uh, set point that we, we gravitate toward, um, in between really good and really bad events, which are inevitable in every life. Um, what I find is that meditation just trains you so that the upper side of that graph uh, stays higher, that when good things happen to you, you're not so busy rushing off to the next thing or recalling some bad thing that you're kind of there for it. Like we had a kid a year and a half ago. It's been awesome. Um, uh, that's not to say I haven't had bad days. I got plenty of them, um, but it, fewer than I used to. And then when bad things happen, um, you know, you you have to feel badly about it, but the 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 dip can be much more shallow and much shorter because you're not engaging in useless rumination and feeding it unnecessarily. So, in my view, I really see it as a training for all aspects of your life that can be applied just as continuously and consistently as you have the energy for. Got it. Got it. Well, you mentioned you mentioned your days that it doesn't make every day perfect, but I want to ask you literally about your days. So before this panic attack, you're you're running and gunning, big TV, celebrity status, making things happen in a ball of uh, I assume energy and production, and you're doing busy, important work, applauded by millions, and you wore yourself out. But would you say that now you've? Because I think people could easily look and question. Oh, so now you've slowed down, or? Have you you're you're still producing at a high rate, but you've just included or adopted a necessary healthy habit that allows you to do it in better health? Yeah, a lot of people worry that if they meditate and get too happy, they're going to um, lose their edge. And I talk about this a lot in the book. Um, I worried about this too. Um, totally not true. Um, uh, I think that is to mistake happiness with something else. It is to mistake happiness with complacency. So um, complacency would would get you sitting back and resting on your laurels. Happiness just is uh, just a healthier frame of mind in which you're better able to focus on what's happening right now. 
um, and less yanked around by your emotions. So you're, you know, the calmest person in the room during a contentious meeting. You have better relationships with your employers and employees and colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like a much more, for me, happiness is a much, uh, uh, like a huge contingent, a uh, component rather of success. Um, and so in my own life, I have, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to, uh, engage in like therapy now, but like, I definitely haven't slowed down. I, one could argue that I'm doing too much. Um, you know, I, I, uh, still work full time at ABC news and love it. Um, I, uh, travel around the country speaking about meditation. I am going to write three more books, uh, which I'm working on now. I, uh, started a company that teaches people how to meditate through an app, uh, 10%, also called 10% happier, um, and, and, and so I'm incredibly busy. Um, and I, you know, I hosted a game show a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I, I do a lot of things and perhaps too many, but I think mindfulness really keeps me much saner in that context than I other, than I was before. There was a kind of sweatiness, uh, a graspiness around my ambition before that I think the volume has turned down on, not all the way, but definitely come down on. Well, I, I'm interested in you talking about that. And I did read about that in your book too, that worry that, oh my gosh, if I, this anxiety, this, this high uh, rate that you're going at, I don't want to lose my edge. And so for those who, we would hope that people would value happiness, um, but I know they value production and I can talk, I can, I can hold myself out as that, man, I want to produce, I want to produce a lot. I want to produce good things. I want to make things happen. Would you go as far to say, Hey, you, you not only lose your edge, you'll have a better edge. Yes, I definitely would say you have a better edge. Properly applied meditation uh, in sharpens your edge for a number of reasons. It, you know, it, it improves your ability to focus, and we're in an epidemic of multitasking, which is a neurological impossibility. You can't do two things at once, and yet we're trying all the time. And monotasking, which meditation will lead you toward, is really a much more productive and healthy way to to, to go about your day. I can't say I do that all the time, but I know I'm better at doing it and I know I should do more of it. Um, uh, but, 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 but back to the sort of bigger question that people have is they, you know, and this is my question. I, I was the guy with the motto of the price of security is insecurity. So I really believed that, that, um, you needed to worry a lot, uh, to, to get anywhere. And you know what? I still believe that. I still believe that if you're going to do anything great, it's going to involve a certain amount of plotting and planning and uh, stress and worry. However, what mindfulness has taught me is that I can more effectively draw the line between useless rumination and what I call constructive anguish. You know, there's a certain amount of anguish that makes sense. But then on the 17th time that you're worrying about like, all the awful ramifications of missing your flight or whatever, maybe you ask yourself the simple question of, is this useful? And that can, you know, cut things off where you're instead of just snowballing and spiraling into uh, this term that I, I've used a lot in this discussion of useless rumination. You know, you, 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 you realize when you've reached the point of diminishing returns and worrying about something and you start thinking about something else that frees up a, a whole of, a lot of bandwidth to be much more productive and creative. OK, OK, yeah. well. Go ahead, Tom. Let me jump on that yeah. just for a second. I was just thinking back to uh, my father, and you know he he studied so much. He studied three hours a day, and, and every everything, every ounce of his study, literally, was dedicated to what can I learn 
that I could then teach somebody else that would give them a better chance to have a more successful, fruitful life. All of those, uh, you know, all of those things. And, and dad had this amazing, um, ability to, um, no matter the circumstance that happened, if something he knew was beyond his control, like a flight delay, it had zero negative impact on his demeanor. And so he had this un, uh, this uncanny ability to take in observation, and if it was beyond his control, it had zero emotional impact. And that, That's I think, is, I mean, he wrote books waiting for airplanes. That's that's how he did it, and and he planned in advance for that eventuality. He always had something to do if the power went bad or whatever. And so really that's what I think uh, mindfulness is kind of leading me towards. It's that internal realization of let's control the things we can and let go of the things we can. And the problem is is we never take the time to analyze or to say, wait a second, what am I spending my time on that for? So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I, uh, I think it's maximal resilience. Um, and, you know, you just have to recognize that things are out of your control. Um, and uh, there's a great quote from uh, David Axelrod, who ran President Obama's uh, two presidential campaigns um, and set aside whatever you think about President Obama. But his quote is very good nonetheless, which is, um, he was asked once, you know, how do you deal with all the variables out of your control when you're running a presidential campaign? And he said, all we can do is everything we can do. And that's the exact right attitude in my mind. Okay. Uh, with that, uh, here's a piece out of your, your book. I wanted, uh, your comment on you wrote, you wrote this, this is directly out of it. Many of us labor under the delusion that we're permanently stuck with all the difficult parts of our personalities that we are hot tempered or shy or sad, and that these are fixed immutable traits. We now know that many of the attributes we value most are in fact skills, which can be trained the same way you build your body in the gym. Now we've hit on this a little bit, but when I take that at face value, that quote that you wrote there, I I don't know that I like it, Dan. I mean, I'm an impatient guy and I don't really want to be patient. I just want slow people to get out of the left lane and people at Redbox to choose and purchase their movies online instead of browsing at the kiosk while I wait behind them. But you're telling me that even my, my impatience is something I have strengthened. I didn't mean to, but I have strengthened. And I continue to do that, especially with that mindset I just shared there, but that I can do the work to become more patient, to become different. Yeah, well, I would just ask you, in those moments when you're feeling impatient, how does that feel? Bad. Yeah, of course it does. feels bad. That doesn't mean you should to, to, to slowly train yourself to abandon it to let it go, to see the impatience arising and not feed it through compulsive thinking won't mean that you will be ineffective. Uh, It will just mean that you will stop ruining your own life um, in those moments. And uh, believe me, I'm super impatient. I have this, I see it arising in my own mind all the time. And what mindfulness has taught me how to do is to see that it feels like crap. And so, especially in moments when there's nothing you can do about it, it doesn't mean, I think you're telling yourself this whole story. I mean, I'm now this is just me projecting, but I think you're telling yourself this story that if I stop being impatient, even though it's, you know, making my life on the road and in line miserable, that somehow I'm going to become less effective in my professional pursuits or as a parent or whatever. And I just don't, I think that's a, a, a logical leap that, that while it's one that I've made personally and many times, 
doesn't really actually um, work um, and that you actually will be much better, more effective, calmer, uh, more calm, more patient um, if you're not wasting so much energy feeling um, miserable uh, driving. Agreed. Agreed. And again, I look at it and it makes sense. I just realize in the reality of life that, yeah, that's not my, well, you talked about it. It's not natural for us to, to go this direction. It's natural to sit there, be angry and wish that other people would change. They're not going to, so I can only change myself. We know that, but my gosh, taking it captive, like you're calling us to is just, is just a big deal. Um, and, uh, I'm getting, I'm getting great teaching as always doing this interview, uh, with you. Well, Hey, so uh, a couple more things. This is the Ziegler show. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention chapter six in your book. Can you, are, are, you, are you that uh, mindful of your own chapters? Can you tell the listeners what the title of that chapter is? If not, I got uh, it written down. Uh, I can pull out a book. <laughs> it's been two and a half years since this thing came out and probably three or four years since I, um, wrote it, but here it is. The power of negative thinking. There, there you go. Zig just rolled over in his grave, Dan. Uh, <laughs> however, I read the chapter and, uh, I, I would ask you to give us a little understanding of what you mean by that. It's glib. It's a little, it's not sure. entirely, um, it's not entirely accurate. It's, 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 as I said, it's glib. Um, I have, and again, I don't know much about uh, Zig Ziglar, um, but, um, I have a problem with big chunks of the positive thinking, um, for lack of a better term, theology, where you tell people that you can solve all of your problems. And again, I don't know if that you guys are doing this, but some in the self-help world are telling people you can solve all of your problems through the power of positive thinking and that there's a magical effect, the law of attraction. You know, this is what they talk about in The Secret, that, you know, just by thinking positive thoughts, you can like cure your cancer or get a diamond ring or di diamond necklace, blah, blah, blah. I just, there is no evidence for this. And in fact, it becomes ridiculous if you reverse the logic. So are you going to tell me that everybody um, in Haiti in 2010 uh, was thinking negatively and that, that that's why they got this lethal earthquake or that every baby uh, born in a refugee camp today was thinking negatively in utero, and that's why they were born in a refugee camp. That's crap. Um, so the, when I talk about, so that's my that's my critique of of the law of attraction and certain uh, sort of virulent strains of positive thinking that I have a problem with. But the what I meant by the power of negative thinking was that when you the point of mindfulness is not to magically will yourself into. Um, a sort of fabricated, forced positivity. The point of mindfulness is to see whatever's arising in your mind and body and so that you're not controlled by it. So there's actually value in just leaning into your anger, sadness, rage, or whatever. Not, not so that you act on it blindly, just, just the opposite, so that you see it for what it is, a passing set of mental phenomena. And that, that is really, to me, the, the vast power of of negative thinking. Now, that being said, positive psychology, um, th having a good attitude, using cognitive uh, top-down techniques to um, to train the mind to have a more optimistic view, um, uh, that all makes sense to me. Uh, cultivating gratitude, looking for the good things in your life, all of that makes complete sense to me. It's only when we start 
this idea, this sort of magical thinking that that you should never have any negative thoughts and um, uh, and that you can somehow wash the brain of all negative thoughts, fill it with positive thoughts, and then everything amazing is going to happen for you. Well, well, Dan, I think uh, we're exactly on the same page. There's a there's a kind of a famous saying in our industry that says, "Whatever the mind can conceive and you can believe, you will achieve." And it's it's a statement that uh, we do not hear at Ziegler. This is not what my father believed. This is not what we teach. Our caveat would be is that until you can conceive it and believe it, it's going to be hard to achieve it. But we all have gifts and talents and capabilities that are a huge indicator as to the probability of whether that's going to happen. And the funny story that dad told is that if Shaquille O'Neal wanted to be a racehorse jockey, he would never win the Kentucky Derby. It doesn't matter how much he believes it. It's just not going to happen. So we're, we're right on with that. It, it allows you, dad says this, that, that positive thinking will allow you to do everything better than negative thinking will. So there's never, there's never a reason to have negative thinking. Then we have to qualify what negative thinking is. Negative thinking is not addressing problems. I mean, that's reality. We have to look at problems for what they are. Negative thinking is focusing on the problem rather than on the solution. And so we look at a problem to how do we get through it. So anyway, we're on the same page there. And, and I appreciate what you said because we have to explain ourselves many, many times because so many people have the wrong conception of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I've got to say that I have, uh, it's part of my own story is, is that just not giving any weight and, and credence to a negative feeling. So yeah, in your writing, Dan, in that chapter six, where it says lean into it and be mindful of it, don't just discount it. It's exactly what I spent a lot of time doing and suffered from it and, and still working through that to, to be aware of that dashboard of, of feelings, not discount them. But then, yeah, now go and understand them, uh, feel them. Now go and yeah, see what I can do to, to overcome them and to, to go on in a successful, positive, healthy way. But um, I, so I appreciated it. So I was, I was pulling it out because it was uh, funny in relation to, yeah, as you said, a, a glib statement. But I think it has a lot of value. And especially, yeah, those who may have a little bit of a, a little bit of baggage around the whole positive thinking type arena. Well, hey, I want to, I want to end then asking you about your app. You have a 10% happier uh, app. I told people about it in the intro. You said it's meditation for meditation for skeptics, uh, 10% happier guided meditations and mindfulness techniques to learn how to meditate. Would you give us, give everyone an overview of why you created it and it, what it will help them do? Super briefly, because I'm not a great salesman, nor do I really like selling. But uh, I will uh, just say that that I, when I wrote the book, I didn't think anybody was going to read it. Um, uh, and I was very surprised that it, it, that it started to do well. Um, and in the wake of some of that success, I got a call from a friend of mine in the meditation world who was who had a critique. His critique was, you know, you're getting people excited about meditation, but you're not actually helping them do it. You know, I thought I put meditation instructions in the back of the book and, you know, I learned to meditate out of books. So I kind of thought that I had, you know, covered um, uh, my butt on this one. But his point was you, you really haven't because most people need a lot more than a book. Um, so when the opportunity came along to start an app, I, I got really excited about it. And I, I actually think, you know, this is a this is a great way to co-opt 
the most distracting force in our life, which is our phone, and turn it into something that can retrain your brain to be much healthier. Um, and uh, so, as you said, it's called 10% Happier. It's available in on Apple right now. We'll have a, a an Android uh, up soon. We're really just in our beginning stages. We just raised some venture capital money. and But, but basically, the structure of the thing is we try to make it fun. It's designed for busy, skeptical people. Um, and every day you get a little video of me and a real meditation teacher uh, having a funny conversation about an aspect of the practice, you know, teaching you how to do it. And then you get a guided meditation. Um, and then the other thing we do, uh, not, and by the way, it's not me guiding the meditation. It's an actual teacher who knows what he or she is talking about. And then what we do is we give you a coach, a real human being, a real meditator you can text with through the app and ask questions because people have a million questions. Um, if you want to check it out, it's free for uh, seven days. And then if you really like us, you can um, – uh, become a member. Um, but I, to be honest, and this is where I'm a terrible salesperson, if you do those seven days, you will know how to meditate. And you can go off and do, you can reuse all those meditations. You can go off and just be, go off and be a meditator. Frankly, I'm happy uh, if if that's what you do. Um, if you want much more from us, you can sign on and I think we have value. But um, to me, my real mission is just to get people looking at their own minds and less yanked around by those minds. Well, and that's that's why we had you on here. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, making the effort to bring this message out. I'm, I'm greatly appreciative. It fits in with so much of what I'm looking at. And, and we at Ziggler and just change, positive change uh, in our lives. We do want to be happier and more successful and doing things in a more healthy way. I know I do, and, and anxiety is something that I deal with. So uh, thank you immensely for what you've done, and thank you for taking the time with us today in this show. Thank you both for having me on. Great questions. Great conversation. Really appreciate it. Best of luck to both of you. Well, appreciate thanks. you, Dan. Thank you. And enjoy your uh, 18 month old. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing my best. That's <laughs> awesome. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll be with you in the next show. 